0: This episode of Walter Edgar's Journal is an encore of a previously broadcast program. Welcome to Walter Edgar's Journal. With me in the Scanner studio today is Catherine Reynolds-Chaddock, and she is Distinguished Professor Emerita of Education at the University of South Carolina. And she has published a very interesting book entitled Uncompromising Activist, Richard Greener, First Black Graduate at Harvard College. And actually, Catherine, there could have been several subtitles of Richard Greener's first that you might have used.
1: Oh, yes. Yes. This was um, not even (laughs) my first uh, idea for a title, but it was the one that the publishers liked at Johns Hopkins University Press. So my original title was um, Between a Black and a White Place, Richard Greener and the Politics of Equality – but they wanted one of those firsts, as you mentioned. Well, they also the wanted
0: something that was snappy. Yeah. And, hey, first black graduate of Harvard College, that's...
1: <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And that was not his first first. He was perhaps, although nobody is too sure, he was perhaps the first black graduate of Andover Academy, Phillips Academy Andover. Um there, there was another black student there, but who didn't seem to graduate. And of course, then he went on to be uh, the South Carolina connection, the first black professor at a at a southern public university, which happened to be the University of South Carolina. He went on to be eventually the first black U.S. diplomat to a majority white country, which was Russia. So yeah, he was he was into the first business.
0: Let's start talking about who is or who was Richard Greener.
1: It's really hard to say because there were many Richard Greeners.
0: He had a very unusual childhood.
1: Very much so. Very much so. He was born in Philadelphia, although that's a little bit of a mystery too, because his parents were really from Baltimore. They were freed, uh, had been never born into slavery. I think their parents were in in slavery, but they were free blacks in Baltimore, and there was quite a black community there. But shortly after marriage, Richard Greener's father, Richard Wesley Greener, was very interested in shipping. The, the, The shipyard in Philadelphia was huge, so that is probably why they moved to Philadelphia, and he was born shortly after in Philadelphia. There were also some distant relatives there and so forth. But eventually, the family moved. Richard was about seven or eight years old. They moved to Boston, Massachusetts, he said, to get to better schools for him. Then they discovered that actually the Boston schools were still segregated, and they moved over to Cambridge, Massachusetts, where he did go to a a wonderful elementary school and, and so forth. His dad at that point got gold fever and went out west with gold rush intentions and somehow was lost, never came back. For a while, he kept in touch. He was in California, and eventually he just totally lost touch. And so at a very young age, Greener decided as an only child he better leave school when he was about 12 or 11 and get some work and and do for his mother and help her out.
0: Well, how did this working-class black child in Boston end up at Philip Fandover?
1: He was a scrappy kid. He made great friends, for instance, with Oliver Wendell Holmes Sr. and would be on his boat going up and down the Charles River. He made friends with, oh, just a lot of Boston Names and so forth. He always went to the the abolitionist meetings and so forth because they were exciting. That was where the excitement was, and he was a scrappy kid working jobs. But when he wasn't working, he was doing things, meeting people, etc. He finally met a gentleman named Augustus Batchelder, who had a silver and jewelry business, who became his benefactor to get him first to Oberlin university academy in Ohio.
0: Oberlin, like many, like almost all colleges in those days, had a prep school before the college. Right. So he was going to the Oberlin prep Prep school. School.
1: And that part of Ohio was very welcoming Mm -hmm. of diversity. Mm -hmm. And so he had really very little problem getting accepted there and so forth. Then after that academy, I think he was there about two years, he decided Yeah, he would like to go on to college somewhere, somehow, but probably back east. So he went back east, met with his benefactor. His benefactor decided he wasn't quite ready yet for Harvard and would send him to Andover. He was the only black while he was at Andover, but he had a wonderful time. He was very accepted. Of course, he was a very light-skinned black.
0: I'm glad you mentioned that, Catherine, because you talk about the ease with which he moved, for example, in Ohio, he was very light-skinned, which was an issue that he had to wrestle with all his life. And quite frankly, sometimes he used that to his advantage.
1: Absolutely. I mean, there's no doubt about the fact that if you're going to get a sort of what would be considered a white person's education, an Andover and Harvard education, you're probably going to have an easier time with just people's acceptance, people's, you know, thinking you can do it. Uh, sometimes people not noticing that you were even actually or not being sure that you were a black person. Maybe you were multiracial, whatever. Probably a lot of people were. So, yeah, I, I think that for issues of acceptance and so forth, that was good. It turned out that for issues of identity, internally for him that wasn't always the greatest. I mean some you could be still a little too black for the whites, but you could also be a little too light for the blacks and a little suspect about being light skinned and having a white man's education.
0: Later on, his wife and children did pass for white. But Absolutely. That's a later part of the story. All right, he's he's at Andover and he makes friends at Andover wealthy white that are going to be his friends for life.
1: Absolutely. He loved his Andover experience. He went to his 50th reunion (laughs) at Andover.
0: You've got a great picture (laughs) of that 50th reunion.
1: Yeah. I mean, and so, you know, he kept in touch with some of those folks and in touch with, with a love for the place. The year he graduated was the year of Appomattox, was the end of the Civil War. So there was some, you know, kind of historic pride in that also.
0: So he graduates from Andover in 1865, and he's got his sights set on Harvard.
1: Exactly. And it still wasn't easy. There's still an admissions test. His benefactor, Batchelder, actually got him some tutoring, some additional tutoring after Oberlin and Andover, uh, because he knew what the admissions test would entail and so forth, so he had, he had a problem with math, right? He yes, he he had a problem with math, algebra in particular. <laughs> I know, I do too. You know, he was a little more right brain than left brain, and as we know later, he became such an orator and a speaker and and so forth. But actually, one of his tutors was George Her- Herbert Palmer, eventually the Harvard philosopher who became so well known. And he um, he worked hard to to get that that test passed. The president of Harvard at that time, Thomas Hill, was also very interested in sort of trying this experiment, as he called it. You know, let's try this experiment. He kind of wanted it to work. There had been one other admittee who was African American to Harvard College several years before, but that that boy actually um, got sick and passed away before he ever entered Harvard so really Greener was the first entrant to Harvard College. There had been a African American at the medical school, and so for the you know the graduate school at that time that was mostly um, mostly working with doctors off campus and so forth so that was a little easier for them. These people weren't in residence halls and so forth so Richard Greener was truly the first to, you know, board in a residence hall and so forth. I think it was fortunate that he had lived in Cambridge. His mom lived in Cambridge. He didn't see much of her those years. But, you know, he kind of knew the place. There was some comfort in that, no doubt.
0: But now they assigned him to a single room, didn't they?
1: Yes, they did. At least until I think eventually somebody he knew at Andover got in to Harvard when Greener was a sophomore, and and then he he roomed with that gentleman. But yes, his freshman year, he was a little bit isolated, shall we say.
0: And he had to repeat his freshman year.
1: He had to repeat it. He didn't do well in math. And it was sort of one of these, shall we ask him to repeat it, or shall we just expel him? And again, President Hill kind of helped influence the faculty to say, let's give him another chance if he's willing to. At first, Greener didn't want to because he knew the expense. Oh, my gosh, it's one more year for my benefactor. But the benefactor didn't mind and said, no, 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 don't worry but about it.
0: If we look at, at Greener's career, he was a pretty prickly individual.
1: Absolutely. Self-confident
0: to and, the point of and being so prickly. This, yeah. So this idea of I've got to repeat is something of an insult
1: I think so. I think while he wanted to succeed, if he wasn't going to succeed pretty quickly, he would sort of say, oh, I'm not going to do that anymore. I'll do something else. It's just like at one point he had thought he would become a silversmith and he worked you know in an engraving office and they weren't the, the at one point somebody criticized his work and he left you know so and he left the idea of becoming an engraver.
0: He does repeat his freshman year and from then on the Harvard experience the experience and the experiment works.
1: Absolutely. He he won some writing contests and and awards and so forth and I'm sure that helped uh, him be a little less prickly about the whole thing. And he um joined some clubs. And so forth. And, and, you know, had a few friends on and off campus. And so he he finally sort of felt part of things.
0: And very early on, in addition to the writing awards, he gained something of a reputation as an orator, a debater.
1: Yes, absolutely. And he actually sort of got his first experience in that at Oberlin. He started, you know, doing some, oh, I want to be part of this debate thing, this debate team, this debate club, et cetera, et cetera. So I think he started realizing that was a good thing for him, that that people admired what he did in that area. And that stuck with him all his life.
0: When he graduates from Harvard, all of a sudden, ooh, what am I going to do with myself
1: This was a really interesting point that that whole graduation of an African-American from Harvard kind of makes. It was one thing to get an African-American into Harvard and through Harvard. Quite a different thing to get an African-American into a type of profession that you would think Harvard people would go into. It, and and that was a learning experience even for me too that you could be this wonderful first but it didn't get you to where these elite men who graduated Harvard and went into their father's law firm or went on to medical school or went into their father's finance office or whatever and he didn't have that opportunity. So his first job was as a teacher, a school teacher actually high school teacher in Philadelphia where what the principal of the school was a woman who had been at Oberlin when he was there Fanny Coppin. so he got that opportunity and he took it I mean it was you don't think oh you go all the way through Harvard to be a school teacher you could probably do that at another school that wasn't as expensive or something but that's that's what was available.
0: He's a teacher, and there's an election coming up in, in Philadelphia, and all of a sudden he realizes that the war's over, slavery's been abolished. Of course, he was a free person to begin with. His parents were free. But African Americans in Philadelphia are realizing that, hey, it can be just as dangerous here to exercise the ballot as it is in the South.
1: Absolutely. On the on voting day, when it became apparent that a lot of African Americans were going to exercise their right to vote, and especially in hotly contested city votes, mayoral votes, etc., the Philadelphians, who didn't think that was a good idea, came out in force and tried to block people from the polls. And of course, some of them had guns. There were fights in the streets. Uh, the assistant principal of the school where, where Greener worked was killed that day on his way to, to vote and Greener then became the assistant principal. I mean I, it it was a tough, tough time, even in the North. What we would consider the North, Philadelphia. I mean, really.
0: And and then he moves to another teaching job in Washington, D.C. That's where your initial title, uncompromising activist, I think, is very appropriate, because the things he openly believed in, he, he goes to to Washington, D.C. and he goes to a colored school. He later, of course, would disavow the term "colored." He he thought "negro" was the appropriate term. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, he, one thing he said he said we shouldn't just have a colored school. They should be a, they should be desegregated school integrated schools.
1: Interestingly enough, there was a colored school board that was you know parallel sort of for the colored schools to the, a white school board for the white schools in Washington, and this. The colored school board really did not get behind the idea of integrated schools. I don't know exactly why it it might have felt like it threatened their prominence in Washington D.C. There was a vital and prominent um, African American community in Washington D.C. that were were kind of elite, and maybe the mixing would have uh, would be seen as. I don't know losing some of that eliteness of the of the black community in Washington, but he still fought very hard for um, for attention for the idea of an integrated school system in Washington,
0: and that cost him his job.
1: It certainly did. He could still teach, but he was removed from any administrative principalship. At about the same time, somebody from the Board of Education in South Carolina heard about him. It's surmised that it was Senator Sumner from Massachusetts, Charles Sumner, who knew Greener from the Massachusetts years, from the Harvard years, who maybe uh, alerted this person who was on the Board of Education in South Carolina that, hey, you know, your university says it's going to integrate. Why don't you also integrate the faculty? And if Sumner got any encouragement, he certainly would have maybe suggested Greener as someone who could do that.
0: You mentioned something that most folks don't realize at the South Carolina College or the University of South Carolina, the only public state university that desegregated its students, its faculty, and its board of trustees during Reconstruction.
1: Right, exactly. The board of trustees was majority... Black, I think, by one person, Mm -hmm. and of course the student body was slightly majority black in during Reconstruction, about eighteen seventy three to seventy seven, mostly because so many white students left because they were incensed about the idea of, of. having to you know learn with black students but those that stayed were very liberal and and very welcoming mm-hmm. of the black students and the same was true of the faculty the uh, all sorts of faculty members left they didn't want to be an, in an integrated situation but the ones who stayed were wonderfully welcoming liberal faculty members now the ones who left would tell you they were all carpetbaggers and scalawags, but you know, they were good people. One professor was had graduated from Penn, another had graduated from Harvard, another had graduated from a school in Scotland. You know, so it was it was good people that that Greener was asked to join.
0: He does accept the job, and initially he was not sure what to do. <laughs> it
1: was the darndest thing. He he got a letter. He didn't he didn't look for this job. He got a letter from from the trustees saying, you know, would you be interested? And in, you know, we have this opening, professor of mental and moral philosophy, which seemed to be like the classics a lot. And he knew Latin then. He knew French by then. At any rate, um, he started pondering it. He had a girlfriend in Washington. He didn't know if he should stay in Washington and try to fight for this hopeless thing that he had gotten fired for or what. Well, while he was pondering, about a week later, he got another letter from the board of trustees that said, we've just elected you to be our new professor of mental and moral philosophy. (laughs) And, you know, the trustees worked very fast in those days. (laughs) That doesn't happen as much now. But, yeah, so so he, he sort of decided, why not? And, you know, I think Greener just because who he was, and y- we mentioned a little bit, he, his audacity, his snappiness, his self-confidence. I think the idea of another first and also the idea of being called professor you know, was probably pretty neat to him.
0: In those days, the university provided housing for faculty. One of the most beautiful faculty houses on campus was what we call Lieber now. And he got one half the building as his As his residence.
1: Absolutely. It was unexpected to him because he knew he would be the only African-American professor on campus. So he pretty much thought, they'll put me in a corner somewhere. You know, I'll I'll be a little bit separated somehow. But here he is in Lieberhaus, and it's a duplex. And and so it's really a shared building. And on the other side of it is a, a young white professor, Professor Main, who, you know, felt, hey, it's fine. I don't care who's on the other side of the wall. And even if he wasn't on the other side of the wall, I I welcome him.
0: Well, Greener's hiring did not go unnoticed in the local press, either the, the Republican press or the white press.
1: Yes, I do remember recall one quote from, I think it was the newspaper in Georgetown, South Carolina, actually, that said, well, Richard Greener has been hired. He is a black man. That means now mental and moral philosophy will be about as clear as mud. You know, undoubtedly, he knew that Mm -hmm. Columbia was a little bit different. We had the federal troops right near the university. So a lot of the white folks who would have objected, had sort of gone quiet and gone underground a little. And I'm sure the Columbia newspapers were speaking out also, though.
0: Well, and of course... After the Constitution of 1868, one man, one vote. African Americans got, and they were 60 percent of the population.
1: And the legislature, which was meeting often on biz, on, on buildings on campus too, was full of you know African Americans elected from various districts all over the state.
0: Greener eventually did become involved in in politics, not as a candidate, but as a member of the Republican Party, and certainly as an orator in, in speaking in, in elections.
1: Very uh, much so.
0: In fact, when you review his years in Columbia, uh, and he left in 1877, right. all of the things he did, besides teaching, he became the university librarian, first kind of on his own as a volunteer, but he basically saved the library. That, by the way, was the genesis of getting the Larry Levy portrait done of him. The university discovered Richard Greener a long time before just now. Dr. George Terry commissioned that portrait of Greener to be done because basically he saved the university library. Yes, and
1: good for him. All the people who objected to an integrated university in the community would take advantage of the library, would take out dozens and dozens of books, never bring them back. People were stealing books, people were burning books, whatever. You know, it was because of the objection that there was an integrated university in their midst so when greener became the sort of what we would say now the interim librarian after the librarian kind of disappeared in the middle of the night they people worried he was he was a white person with a a very you know liberal attitude toward blacks and people worried about the Ku Klux Klan or well, whatever when he did, He
0: also was a pretty sleazy character. <laughs> I mean, forget about his politics. He was just a sleazy character. He had
1: a lot of jobs and one, only one of them was the library. And he was also a journalist and a stringer for various papers. And he didn't pay much attention to the library. Actually, Greener brought the idea of the card catalog To what is now South Caroliniana Library. It was lists before that. And and lists, you know, nobody knew how to find something on a list. So he had seen card catalogs at Harvard, of course, that hadn't been seen down here. And he did bring that and started cataloging books, really, by numbers and so forth.
0: Well, you, you mentioned once he joins the faculty, he lets his Harvard friends know. And he actually sends to Harvard photographs of the university campus.
1: Absolutely. Do those
0: still exist?
1: The the originals are at Harvard. They're online also at South Caroliniana's website. But yes, the originals of those black and whites, and they they were basically, you know, the horseshoe buildings, the the South Caroliniana Library, Lieber House, et cetera, et cetera, the buildings that were there at the time, which is basically the top of the horseshoe. And so what a, a wonderful treasure trove, I think, Michael Mounter, who did a dissertation on Greener in 2002, I think he found, first found those at Harvard in their
0: archives. Well, well, I can tell you, having worked on the Horseshoe Committee for many, many years, we didn't know about those until Mike Mounter discovered them. Yeah. Those are some of the – they're not the earliest images, but maybe the most complete images of
1: – That time.
0: Of that time.
1: It's wonderful.
0: Catherine, we need to pause for a moment. Let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgus Journal, and I'm talking with Catherine Reynolds Chaddock about her biography of Richard Greener. I think we could stay in the South Carolina years for the entire show, but we've got a we've got a lot of Richard Greener to cover. But one of the things that appears several times in his later careers, he identifies himself as a South Carolinian, or a South Carolinian in exile
1: and sometimes he would say my adopted state south carolina
0: which which i i find interesting and i often wonder if that doesn't have a connection with the fact that his wife comes from a very elite light-skinned family in washington dc and over time well into the early 20th century ex south carolinians dominated that group they were the very prominent members. And they always said, we were from South Carolina. That made a difference.
1: That's an interesting analysis. And I think that probably could have something to do with it. I think also it it sort of speaks to the idea of the experience that Greener had in South Carolina. It was a good experience. He was able to make real contributions, get, you know, kids that would never have been able to come to the University of South Carolina here to encourage them to come here and then form a preparatory program. He he taught overload, unpaid, in that preparatory program so that those kids could come here as what was called sub-freshmen and actually then pass the exam to get in he convinced the legislature to to get scholarships for the poor kids which was mostly obviously african american newly freed kids mm-hmm. and so forth so he was able to make some really significant contributions and and to be prominent in the in the community and so forth i think it was a very good time for him during reconstruction
0: the end of reconstruction in the spring of 77 he's already seeing the handwriting on the wall because the university will be closed in 1877. But I think he leaves at spring break in essence and he doesn't come back.
1: Yes, he. before that, he had campaigned for the local candidates, the, the Republican local candidates in the upper part of the state from kind of Newberry up to Wahala. And those were very vitriolic campaigns. People came and, you know, started fights when you were giving a campaign speech for somebody and so forth. So hotly contested local campaigns, hotly contested gubernatorial campaign with Wade Hampton versus Chamberlain and so forth. So on a hotly contested national campaign. It, it just was a difficult political time and, you know, came back to campus to find that, even with all that campaigning, things were were turning to back to the conservative Democratic, which was conservative at that time, direction.
0: When President Rutherford B. Hayes decided to withdraw federal troops, Daniel Chamberlain, the governor, who claimed to, we had two governor people <laughs> claiming to be governors, we had two general assemblies. The Reconstruction regime collapsed.
1: Yeah, well. Federal troops were pulled out. They had been pulled out already in a lot of the South, but Rutherford Hayes made a deal in order he 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 lost the popular vote, but in order to get the electoral college vote, he promised that he would get the federal troops out of the rest of the South, which included South Carolina. Once that happened, you as you said, collapse was a good word. Um, the whole idea of one man, one vote of, yeah, you know, there's a million ways you can get around that, as we know from intelligence tests to poll taxes, it, that, that whole idea of uh, equality collapsed.
0: And so Greener leaves. And what does he do? Where does he go now? Go back to Washington?
1: Yep, he sure did. By this time, he had one child. He had had two ch- children while here when he after he married. Um, one did not survive much past infancy. Another went to Washington with him. They did live near um, his wife's mother, his wife Genevieve's mother in Washington. And Greener started job hunting. And job hunting in Washington in those days was patronage. And he had campaigned. And so that was good. He had, you know, been involved. People knew him. And he finally did get a job at the um, Department of Treasury as a clerk in the Treasury Department. And he was happy for it. While he was at University of South Carolina as a professor, he also got his law degree. So he decided, while being working for the Treasury, to start looking for jobs in, in the legal world also.
0: And this is where he links up at at Howard University. And the law school there was kind of there, but it really wasn't a part of the university. It was...
1: Yeah, it was in a different building. It was a, it
0: was a pay year. They depended upon student tuition and that was it.
1: Yes. And, and the students were helped to find somebody, a lawyer to read read the law with. And, and maybe a couple of teachers were there sort of talking to them somewhat in between informally. But it was really just being in some lawyer's office and, and reading the law, as it were, and, and helping. It was a big internship, as as all law schools were back then, to a and certain extent.
0: he actually gained the title of dean of the law school, did he?
1: Eventually, yes. The the dean of the law school got appointed, I think, as a diplomat in Haiti and Greener was sort of next in line and, and got appointed as, as dean of the law school.
0: He seemed to have a problem with higher academic authority.
1: <laughs> I don't – yeah, that's that was interesting. They – you know, Greener always had on the side his oratory, which was, you know, at this point in Washington and Philadelphia and, and Baltimore. He would go to give speeches, not always political speeches. He'd give a speech about Plato or, you know, whatever. But – uh, I think he wasn't paying attention enough to, you know, Howard Law School. Or at least if he was, it wasn't successful because the, the enrollment was dropping and so forth. And he wasn't well-liked by higher administration, as you said, because maybe they had asked him to pay more attention and he didn't. Who knows?
0: He also was very popular in the community. I mean, that you can't outshine the guy at the top.
1: <laughs> <laughs> maybe that was some and, of and it, he, yeah. And
0: he, he also was again, writing letters to, like to the editor and essays and what have you promoting integrated education. Yes. And that was not very popular either.
1: No. Not in the Rutherford B. Hayes times, you know, and, and the representatives and, and senators were, were turning back to, you know, really almost strictly white and so forth. So, Yeah. Um, he... He didn't mind taking being unpopular about issues. I almost think he took pride in it, but Greener did do some legal work for for various folks and did catch the attention of some people, including you know, at one point he had known General Grant and had all gone to the White House several times to to promote some things with Grant and so forth, some various legislation that would benefit the blacks and so forth. So he yes, could yes. call himself a Grant acquaintee.
0: Yes, he was very outspoken in terms of promoting the first Civil Rights Act. Mm-hmm. Um, for
1: uh, Which was Charles Sumner's big push. So he got an opportunity when, um, when Grant died and W.R. Grace, the shipping magnate, Decided Grant should be in New York, memorialized in New York, buried there, have a big memorial, etc. The family agreed with Grace because Julia Grant, Grant's widow, was wanting to be buried with Grant someday. That couldn't happen at Arlington, for instance, and many other places. So, hey, New York's the place. W.R. Grace got a little board of, of trustees together to form the Grant Monument Committee and hired Richard Greener as the only paid person, the administrative staffer for the entire Grant Tomb effort, which was mostly an effort to raise money, but then eventually to get an architect, uh, to select an architect, and so forth and so on, and also to to, uh, push back on all these attempts to have Grant buried somewhere else. So he spent a number of years working on the Grant Monument.
0: And he also was a member of the Board of Trustees. He stayed as a Board of Directors, rather.
1: Right. Eventually, after about five years, they had raised quite a bit of money. And he was very active in that. They had broken ground. They had an architect. Then there was infighting in the board. And W.R. Grace resigned. And a couple of other board members resigned. And a new chair of the board came in and new board members who had other directions in mind about how to raise money and so forth. Actually, they weren't bad directions. They were good. But they also decided, well, you know, everybody should be a volunteer. We shouldn't have one paid guy. And so here Richard Greener was out again, just like he was out at the end of reconstruction um, of the University of South Carolina. And he's in New York City by this time. His wife is in New York City with him. They have four children, eventually five children, and he starts going back to trying to cobble together a law practice, which was not easy.
0: And he tried several get-rich schemes. Nothing ever really worked.
1: He was very attracted to the sort of, oh, gee, there's a silver mine in Canada, and <laughs> I'll invest in that. Or uh, an insurance company, I'll invest in that. He, he, was, he was easily attracted to get-rich quick. And and almost none of them, I think near the end of his life, one of them paid off a tiny bit, but he lost money. Every every bit that he saved, he would lose right away in some little scheme of his. And of course, this really irritated his wife.
0: In New York, the marriage falls apart.
1: Absolutely. Uh, Lots of of bickering, trying to raise five kids in New York City and, and, you know, Uh, being busily uh, losing money but trying to actually have a law firm that's not totally successful because even when he got clients, a lot of them didn't pay.
0: So what happens now? How does he end up in Russia?
1: Well, he got an opportunity to do some campaigning for the McKinley campaign. And for some reason, they wanted him up in the Midwest. And Mark Hanna was running that campaign and running it well.
0: You know, I think it's interesting that they hire him to promote the Republican campaign in the Midwest.
1: Yeah, I do, too. They may have felt that more of their blacks were able to vote, that, you know, the poll tax and the intelligence tests and everything and the intimidation weren't maybe as extreme as other places they could have sent greener, and this might have been an area where they felt they had more of a chance for at least some black voting. Uh, I don't know. But he, he enjoyed it. He thoroughly enjoyed it. And he had some distant relatives in the Chicago area. And he kind of got to know them a little bit more then. And of course, he had left his family back in New York. And as you said, the marriage was on shaky ground by then, for whatever reasons. But um, he McKinley did get elected. And all of a sudden, patronage again he ends up getting an appointment first to India as a consular officer. Now, this is before that you didn't have to be an ambassador to get a presidential appointment. There was no civil service, in, you know, at the State Department or anything. All appointments were political. Then, for some reason, he heard about plague in India and decided he didn't really want that. He actually got approved by, by uh, Congress, but then he didn't take it and got instead appointed to be the consular officer to Vladivostok, Russia. And this would have been in about the late 90s, 1890s. And so he said, why not? The family had no desire to go with him to Vladivostok. Vladivostok was, had never had a U.S. diplomat. They were all in St. Petersburg But it was getting to be a better opportunity as a trading place, even for the U.S., as far away as it was, because they had invented icebreakers to to be able to get in there. And so he went to Vladivostok.
0: There was a small American community there, which wasn't exactly welcoming to him. And while he was there, his position was downgraded.
1: Exactly. The the Russians, you know, have to accept you also. And they were accepting of a diplomat in Vladivostok, but not at the consular level. So he became a representative level for trade. He was the trade representative for the U.S. in Vladivostok. And he always resented that. He would tell in letters and so forth to friends, I have all the responsibilities of a consul. I am a consular-level appointment because I have to do everything that a consular officer does because I'm the only one in Vladivostok. Therefore, I should be a consular. And I think he bugged the State Department people back in Washington about it pretty constantly.
0: Even though Teddy Roosevelt, a Republican, succeeded when McKinley was killed, he wanted his own people in there.
1: Sure. Greener was a little naive in thinking that somehow – Teddy Roosevelt should keep him there. I mean all the ambassadors were voluntarily resigning, as they would when the presidential turnover happens.
0: And in this case, we're also involving the question of who is going to be the speaker for African Americans in terms of patronage and Greener and Booker T. Washington had crossed swords and Booker T. Washington was the man that Roosevelt looked to, who should be appointed.
1: Oh yeah, it, you know Booker T. and loved that his his whole thing was I control the patronage appointments because I whisper in the ear of the president and so forth. So, yeah, and and Booker T. and and Greener weren't great friends. They sort of believed in different things, and and as that. There was a sort of split in general among the black community at that time. Booker T was, of course, we know, more accommodationist.
0: Of course, W.E.B. Du Bois was beginning, and the, the founding of the NAACP is, is coming is down. Is right the around route. the corner. And Greener moves with that crowd. We don't have that much time left. Before we get into the document search, what happened to Greener's family?
1: They totally lost touch with him. He, they stayed in New York. The five kids and the mother all changed their names. Their last name became Green. Their middle name became Da Costa. To explain, a slightly swarthy skin might be, you know, some Latino.
0: Or Portuguese.
1: Portuguese. Um, This was actually wonderful for those those kids. They got opportunities professionally and personally and educationally that they could never have gotten as black kids.
0: Now, he knew that. He knew that they had changed their names, right?
1: Yes. He was still in touch a little bit with one daughter his first couple of years of about seven years in Vladivostok. Um, Yes, and in touch with other people who knew. He was saddened. I think he knew he'd probably never see them again. And anyway, he had taken up with a Japanese woman and had three children while he was in Vladivostok by that woman.
0: And he actually kept up with that family Well, he he
1: thought he would get back to that part of the world. He he really thought he could convince Teddy Roosevelt to send him back somewhere, if not Vladivostok, somewhere, Japan or wherever. Well, that didn't happen. But about really seven years after he arrived back, one of the daughters started writing to him. And they kept up a wonderful correspondence back and forth. And he never saw her, but he did write to her over a number of years And that was absolutely a treasure trove for me because he he not only wrote about what he was doing those years, but he wrote a lot of memories of his boyhood and so forth and so on. And those letters were in the possession of his granddaughter who I met in her house in Connecticut and talked to her. And I photographed all the letters, and I thought, this is good. And I told her, gee, you know, I'm sure someday we'd love to have those at the South Carolina Library in the archives of the university. Well, this past February, when Evelyn Balsman is her name, when she came down for the unveiling of the greener statue on University of South Carolina campus, she brought them with her and gave them to the archives at the university. It's fabulous.
0: That's incredible. Well, you opened your introduction with the steamer trunk that was found in a house about to be demolished in Chicago. And in that trunk were Richard Greener's Harvard graduation diploma and his law school diploma from the University of South Carolina. But there were also other documents those two things got saved, and I know where they are. We've, we've got the law degree, and Harvard's got the right, the other one. But what the trunk was full of documents. Anybody know what happened to the rest I of it? I
1: know one document. Actually, I had finished the book when I, I found online one document from some organization, like the Order of the Dragons or something like that. Actually, his membership diploma of that went back to them eventually so that was there his license to practice law in south carolina was also there but and there were some books that uh, had gotten very moldy for some reason the documents were on top had suffered some but you know nothing like the books and so forth underneath they were in a house that was 6 miles from where he lived in chicago in the late in the last 15 years of his life nobody knows how they got there and a wrecking crew that was <laughs> demolishing the house, uh, finally went through the house one more time and a gentleman named Rufus McDonald of the wrecking crew said, we should take this big trunk out of the attic. Everybody said, no, 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 no. It's too big to move. So he brought in a paper bag and stuffed as much as he could into the paper bag. So probably some of the items actually got left in the trunk also. but. We always thought for many, many years that when he came back from Vladivostok, he landed in San Francisco, and he was in San Francisco for about two days, and that just happened to be when the earthquake was of 1906. We thought everything was lost in the earthquake that he he owned. But that was obviously not true.
0: He had relatives in Chicago. Did he leave stuff there?
1: He definitely left some things with those relatives in Chicago. And when he came back, he lived with them, although the mother, who was more his age, was deceased by then. There were three maiden aunts. One of them, Ida Platt, was the first black female lawyer in Chicago.
0: <laughs> and so this is so a,
1: she was rather famous on her, on her own right.
0: Richard Greener, uh, we, we've already mentioned, he came back from Vladivostok. He, he lived in Chicago. He did work some with W.E.B. Du Bois and the NAACP, but really... From the letters that you were able to put together, I, I'm gathering he feels like his time is kind of past.
1: It really was. It's worth noting. He visited South Carolina several times when he from Chicago um, when he first came back, he, his, his little adopted state. He had to sneak onto campus at the university. And sneak kind of sneak into South Caroliniana Library to see how his old library was doing, and so forth. And when somebody asked him his name, he wouldn't give it to them. He basically said, um, I, uh, "I I I I worked here many years ago." Somebody shelving books started running toward him, going, "Oh, oh, it's you!" It's, and he just had time to whisper in that gentleman's ear. No names. No names. He was afraid, you know, if they realized a black person was on campus, they'd somehow embarrass him and kick him off. Well,
0: well, this is an instance where he was passing because he – Sure. Because as a black person, he would not have been
1: – And <laughs> if it was convenient, he would, you know, he, he would get on a bus. He wouldn't go to the the back of the bus unless somebody, you know, grabbed him and said, hey, I know you're black. Go back there. But that rarely happened. And so he, he got little advantages like that.
0: You said he came back to South Carolina twice. Other than visiting the campus, what?
1: He spoke at Allen and at Benedict. He spoke in Orangeburg at South Carolina State. He spoke at Avery Institute at a commencement, and a commencement of an um, African-American nurses college in Charleston that he really took an interest in, came back, spoke at their next commencement the next year, and actually donated money to a, uh, to start an endowment for them.
0: Now, see, that's interesting is he was so visible but coming back on campus, he was invisible.
1: In the black community, he was still visible. And he traveled with – one of the people he traveled with was the first black graduate of Johns Hopkins University and had become a famous mathematician. And the um, the Grimke brothers traveled with him some. So it was a little traveling group of, of well-known blacks mm-hmm. that – came to South Carolina twice. And, you know, I don't think they had an agent, but somehow they were welcome to speak at wherever they could speak, which was generally the African-American colleges and and institutes and schools.
0: Katherine, I feel like we could talk about Richard Greener at least another hour or two. And as you said, so many firsts, but he had a very complicated life.
1: Very much so. When he came back from Vladivostok in nineteen oh six, he really saw things had gone downhill. The lynchings, the Ku Klux Klan, impossible for blacks to vote. It was not a good experience.
0: Okay. That is one footnote I want to bring back in because he and Frederick Douglass, who had been with whom he was close, split over this issue. He helped form an immigration group. Of African Americans who wanted to leave the South
1: and go to the Midwest
0: and Douglas said no they need to stay put this is all going to change and Greener said that's not going to happen
1: right and they debated this now he did point out also that at the time that Frederick Douglass was saying stay where you are it'll get better Frederick Douglass had never been south of
0: Washington D.C. and he was living on a big (laughs) gated gated community in Washington D.C. right
1: (laughs) But he had had his success with abolition. And so he, you know, that was fine. He continued to be an advocate, of course, of of the black people. But but Douglas was getting older and and greener was the next generation. And then W.E.B. Du Bois was the next generation.
0: I'm sorry, Catherine, Alfred's giving the wind-up sign. Any last words for our listeners before we sign off today?
1: Thank you. Thank you, listeners. And I cannot thank public radio enough and Walter Edgar enough. Thank you so much.
0: Catherine Reynolds-Chaddock, author of Uncompromising Activist, Richard Greener. Thanks so much for being with us today on The Journal. This is Walter Edgar, and I hope you enjoyed today's journal. I know I did. It was fun to have Katherine Chaddock back on the journal. The story of Richard Greener is an interesting one, in many ways a tragic one, but it's also an integral part of the history of South Carolina and the United States. Even though Richard Greener was in South Carolina for less than five years, he always considered himself a South Carolinian or a South Carolinian exile. And his saving of the university's library during reconstruction is an incredible legacy to all of us here in the Palmetto State. This is Walter Edgar. Join me next week for more of The Journal. Walter Edgar's Journal is a production of South Carolina Public Radio. The producer and engineer is Alfred Turner. Production of this program is made possible in part by listener contributions to the ETB Endowment of South Carolina. The views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina Public Radio.